0: just want to thank you, speaking of missions, just uh, for your support of our team that went over, uh, got back last Friday night after about 38 plus hours of travel, so that was quite an interesting experience. But, you know, I, I think we were greatly encouraged by our time there, and, and I hope and I think we're also an encouragement to the saints there. We stayed with uh, missionaries Brian and Anita Biedebach, there are some missionaries that we support there, this is uh, Brian and Anita and the team and their family, and and Brian's a, he's a great guy. He's a funny guy. You know, he uh, often uh, was uh, uh interesting driver as well. The beginning of our trip began in a rather interesting way. As uh, You know, Brian, when he sees dips in the road, he just, he likes to accelerate. Um, you know, we were in rainy season. There are a lot of dirt roads, a lot of mud. And so there's one occasion he's driving us out. We're in this park and and he sees this dip in the road and he, he punches it. So we start accelerating and I had, I had my seatbelt on. And so I'm in the back seat, sliding around rather violently, and um, I broke his truck window with my head as I slammed into it. It was kind of a unique experience. I think we even had a picture of it there. Um, <laughs> it did hurt. <laughs> um, so that was kind of a fun experience. And then there was, of course, the mouse-eating incident that some of you may have heard about, but I won't show any pictures of that. Um, the fur was kind of tough to get down, but uh, you're probably getting ready to eat, so I'm not going to spend any time there. But seriously, we we spent uh, profitable time there, really enjoyed our time there. Um, the team was used by the Lord to serve in a variety of ways. It was really neat to see how God uh, uses our various talents and gifts and, and skills. We had one point, we had stopped along the road, we got a flat tire, and and we were stopped there fixing the tire, and all these kids started coming out from the village. I mean, lots of them. And they're coming out, and Carol, who, as you know, she's a uh, she's an artist, so she starts drawing these Disney characters, and it was amazing to see how they just latched on to her. You know, everybody knows who Mickey Mouse is; it's unbelievable. But um, just that gave an opportunity; it opened a door, and we were able to. Some of the other uh, folks had tracks in Checheway, so we were having the kids read them. They're actually the opportunity. Carol's drawing gave us an opportunity for the gospel. And it was neat just to see many different ways that took place when we were there. Uh, some of us worked with the music ministry there. You saw uh, some of the team in the video. There were some that worked uh, with them. Uh, others of us, or all of us, were involved in a conference that we had put on for the church where Brian uh, teaches at. It was a conference on um, basically the same theme that we spent last month on fellowship, relationships within the church large portion of my time was spent with uh, these guys here. There's about 30 of them, Malawian pastors who were attending the Central African Preaching Academy or CAPA. Uh, Brian and another missionary there, Jim Ayers, just started this, this year. Uh, these men are there for training, for training in how to teach the scriptures and, and better understand them. I, I taught um, several classes. One was on sermon preparation also did another one on theology that covered three doctrines, the doctrine of anthropology, that's the study of man, the doctrine of hermardiology, the study of sin, and then finally soteriology, study of salvation. And while I was teaching the men, uh, you saw part of the video, some of the ladies singing, uh, there were some ladies from our group who spent time with the pastor's wives. We had asked the pastors to bring their wives. Uh, and so they spent several days together um, teaching and singing with one another and prayer and I was really amazed at how the pastors, many of them came up to me and said, thank you for bringing your wives on this trip. This was such a blessing to my wife. I asked many well, of them, how was it encouraging? You say, a lot of the ladies there, the pastor's wives, the ladies in the church keep their distance from them because they don't want them knowing things. And so they don't have a lot of relationships. And they're with a pastor, or married to a guy who's probably working full time in addition to spending time in the ministry. It's a hard life. And so they... We're very encouraged and blessed by that time. Uh, there was uh, just uh, many other things that happened on the trip. You're going to hear more about, it, I think, in the missions conference and in the future. But, but as I was thinking about the trip, flying back home on that long flight, and just thinking about and as reflecting on various experiences there, um, you know, it did strike me the need. The need's obvious. Great poverty. Malawi's the third poorest nation in the world. Uh, there were many medical needs, physical needs. But the thing that struck me was the need for pastors who are trained, and skilled, and able to teach the Word of God. Uh, these faithful men who I was with, they had so few resources. Uh, the first day I was there, uh, the class was asking, How many of you have more than ten books? There's only a few of them that raised their hands. One guy who had been preaching for several decades had only six books in his library. 6, and I don't even know the quality of the books that he had, but that was it. But these men loved the Lord, and they greatly and passionately desired to accurately proclaim his truth. They badly wanted to know God's word and teach it rightly. I, mean, I was humbled by their, their passion and desire for that. In fact, the one guy you, you heard, Yohanni, uh, he was the one kind of in that uh, uh, vigorous exchange with the other men. Uh, he planted 14 churches in the area. And what he told me was, he said, he said, we're so thankful for this training because I'm taking what I'm learning here and I'm going to the 14 leaders of those other churches and I'm teaching them what I'm learning. Uh, it was really encouraging and humbling. There were others. Uh, some had access to the Internet. One, uh, one told me in particular he'd gone to our website and was downloading resources. Uh, in fact, he had said he downloaded uh, four of my sermons and six of Ed's on counseling. Which I, I didn't take that personally. I think he was trying to encourage me. I like Ed's teaching too. So, but just even basic needs like that, counseling—it's um, the opportunity that we had as a church to be a blessing to them. And as I think about the experiences there, there's one that that sticks out to me. Probably the thing that most impacted me came from a place I didn't expect. For as we were, you know, in this class the, discussing theology, uh, uh, particularly the weighty doctrines of man and and sin. And salvation, and as, as we talked about these various truths and discussed them and looked into His Word and dug into the Scriptures to, to look at Christ and the work that He had done on our behalf. And mind you, these are guys that preached the Gospel for years. These are guys that uh, had heard and understood many of these doctrines. But as we were going through them, I was profoundly struck by how they hit us. Even in the midst of of going through these things, we were all being impacted by the gospel. A gospel we were familiar with. And I was amazed that often our class, it ended up turning into worship services. (laughs) We'd stop, we'd pray, we'd give praise to God for these things. It wasn't just academic information. Even times of singing like you saw. And the fact that we were so affected by the gospel, the fact that we were so impacted it reminded me of the importance of speaking the gospel, not just to unbelievers, but to believers. Over and over in my mind, those words from Paul to the Romans echoed where he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And it is to that same letter, the letter of Romans, I want to draw your attention this morning so that you too would be struck afresh and anew, By the gospel's power. Because again, beloved, the gospel's message is not just for the unconverted to bring them to Christ. It is also and especially a message for the converted to motivate them, to motivate us to live for Christ. In fact, I think that was much of Paul's reason for writing this letter to the Romans. We see that in the very first chapter. If you're making your way to Romans, we're going to start in chapter one. Paul did not plant the church in Rome. It's very possible that it started there because of believers who were at Pentecost. Uh, there were some from Rome. Perhaps they came back, brought the gospel. Uh, there are others. Uh, many went in the Roman Empire, went through Rome, so very easily could have begun by many different people. But Paul was excited, wanted to meet the Romans. He wanted to spend time with them. We see in Romans chapter one, verse nine, as he reveals some of the reasons for that. Notice he says they're beginning in verse nine for God. Whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Here we see Paul badly wanted to visit these Romans. He badly wanted the opportunity not only to minister to them, but to be ministered to by them. He was eager to see them. He was earnestly desiring that. Many times he'd asked the Lord, Lord, I want to go and see them, but he had been prevented. And notice what he says then next in verse 15. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to the faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, those last two verses, verses 16 and 17, are familiar to many of us. In fact, they are the ones that usually get all the attention and, and uh, attention. And in the midst of that, usually first, verse 15 gets overlooked. But notice in that verse, we find a key reason why Paul desired to go to Rome. A reason why he wanted to spend time with them. He says there, I'm, I'm eager to preach the gospel. We'd say, well, yeah, of course. Paul was eager to proclaim the message of good news and bringing the lost to faith. But notice here, he doesn't say, I'm eager to preach the gospel in Rome or to the unbelievers in Rome. Notice he says here, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, to whom is he referring? Who is the you here? He called them Saints and beloved of God back in verse 7. He referred to them in verse 13 as brethren. Verse 80 talks about the fact that they had a testimony of their faith. So that means Paul is writing to believers here, right? That's who he's referring to. And he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. He's saying, I... I want to come and, and proclaim and, and the truths about what Christ has done. And if we look at the verses before, I want to hear from you the work that God's done in you so that we could be mutually encouraged and motivated. Notice what he's saying here. He adds in verse 16 that uh, the gospel of power is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, literally the believing ones, all the believing ones. What's he saying to us here? That the gospel has power not only to convert, but also to sanctify. That the the gospel has power not only to open the eyes of the spiritually blind, but also to guide them along the path of holiness. That the gospel has power, power to not only give us the key to open the doors of heaven, but to lead us safely there. This says to us, beloved, that As you, as we study the mighty truths of the gospel, as you meditate on on them, as you better understand them, as you talk about them and think about them and pray about them, as you do these things, there's power in those truths. We hear a lot of people talk today about power. About power to live a blessed life, a good life. But rarely is it a power that's derived from the gospel. Usually it's a prayer formula or some positive thinking mantra or a behavior modification technique or some uplifting personal story, all having some verse attached to it. But but there's no true power of God in these things. The only thing in which there is true power, lasting power, effective power, God given power is the gospel gospel of our Lord power to battle sin. Power to love Christ more. Power to glorify God in your marriage. Power to forgive. Power to be a testimony for Jesus Christ, whether in your home or in your job. Power to go through difficult trials. Even to thrive in them. Power to to bear up, power to suffer persecution without wavering in your faith, power to have joy regardless of your circumstances, power to have hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, power in the gospel, power to maintain unity within the church. Power everywhere. You get my point? That was Paul's point. Do you want that kind of power at work in your life? I do. Comes by understanding. Understanding meditating on the gospel particularly what paul says about it in the next verse verse 17 for in it the righteousness of god is revealed from faith to faith by faith that's the key message of the book christ's work on the cross which has brought about a right standing for us before god i like how john piper summarizes These words, he says, so how is this good news that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel? Here's the answer. God demands righteousness and we don't have it. And so the only hope for us is that God himself would give the righteousness that he demands. That would be good news. That would be gospel. The reason the gospel is the power of God for salvation, the way that the gospel saves believers is that in it, God reveals a righteousness for us. That God demands from us. What we had to have. But could not create or supply or perform. God gives us freely. Namely his own righteousness. The righteousness of God. End quote. And it's then in the subsequent chapters. Of the book of Romans. That Paul unfolds in glorious detail. All that this means. All that Christ did to accomplish. This Righteousness. And so for our time this morning, I want us to take us on a brief journey through uh, this morning, the early parts of Romans, and we're going to see some of the details. It's a journey that I know will motivate and encourage and challenge you as we consider all that Jesus did on our behalf. I've outlined the message. Originally, I outlined it in three points, our standing Christ's work and our response, but we're probably only going to make it to the first two this morning. Let's consider first our standing. You know, if you look at verse 18, the very next verse in chapter 1, you'd see Paul does not begin this gospel journey by saying God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. In fact, notice he says quite the opposite. Commentator Leon Morris says, before Paul gives us the remedy, he first shows us the severity of the disease. And indeed, as as we read those words and Chapter 1, verse 16, it's the power of God for salvation. We have to ask ourselves, salvation from what? What is it that we need to be delivered from? From poverty? From health? From hardship? From oppression? From negativity? From bad people? What do we need to be saved from? Look at the first words in verse 18. The wrath of God. Certainly we need to be saved from sin and certainly we need to be delivered from Satan's clutches. Indeed, we need to be delivered from guilt and our disharmony, from wrong choices that we make and their consequences. But first and foremost, we need to be delivered from the wrath of God. The wrath of God, a just and holy and perfect and kind and good creator against our sin, our rebellion against him. And that's where Paul goes the rest of chapter 1. He he talks about, he speaks about the rebellion from these pagan idolaters, uh, self-proclaimed atheists, both in belief and practice, who suppress the truth about God as their creator in order to do what they want to do, in order to worship things in the creation, in order to sin and rebel against the one who made them. We see in verse 21 there, Paul says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, in their foolish heart was darkened and then paul goes on in the rest of the chapter to put in greater detail the the impact and the effect and the characteristics and the attributes of these who've rejected god then we get to verse two and paul addresses the self-righteous hypocrite who might say having read those words well i'm not like one of those guys i've never worshiped an idol i've never done those wicked acts that you're talking about here paul i'm i'm a good person never bowed down to a statue." I, I've never been immoral like you're talking about here. In fact, I, I give to the poor, I tithe to my church, I go to Billy Graham Crusades. I'm nothing like what you've been talking about. But you see, Paul knows better. Chapter 2, he shows us he understands the human heart. And that those who would say, well, I'm not like that person, Paul understands that, that all of us, even if we've not committed every act of sin outwardly, we have thought and desired it inwardly. And that even maybe we didn't commit any of the big sins, quote-unquote, that he talks about in chapter 1. We've all committed what we call the little ones, which aren't so little. Greed, gossip, gluttony, theft, jealousy, envy. So Paul says... To these self-righteous in Romans 2, 5, to those who would say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. He says this, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Then again in verse 8, he says, God will render to them wrath and indignation. So again, we see this word wrath over and over in this first part of Romans. It's a strong word. It's a harsh word. It's a condemning word. But it's the right word. It's the appropriate word. Remember what Nahum 1 said. Remember the very beginning. We were back there several months ago. And he opened uh, his prophecy saying, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? Or in Psalm 7 verse 11 we read, God is a righteous judge. A God who has indignation every day. Indeed, God is indignant, furious, angry because of our sin. And you know what? It is right that he is. Talked about this many times, beloved. Sin is evil. Sin is bad. Sin is wicked. And sin is extremely personal. David recognized this when he said in Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, our sin is intensely personal. It's not just breaking some arbitrary laws that are just out there in the universe that, no, these are instructions given to us by the God who created and sustains us and cares for us. And when we rebel against those instructions, those commands, we are telling the God who made us, I don't want anything to do with you. You're not to be trusted. You're not to be followed. I have a better way. It's very personal. But what about those then who say, well, I understand that sin is bad. I'm trying to keep the rules. In fact, I'm relying on I'm following God's law, the law he given. Well, Paul addresses that group, verse 17 of chapter two and on. And he says, in effect, effect, again, they rather than keeping the law, the law they were depending on, they were often breaking it, violating it. They really didn't practice the law, though they boasted in it, because, again, Paul knows the sinful human heart. And so in these first chapters, we, what we see Paul doing here is he's, he's building a case. He's, he's trying to communicate and emphasize to us the problem isn't just with those really pagan people. Uh, the problem isn't just with those self-righteous hypocrites. The, the problem isn't just with those who are relying on the law, good works, good deeds to make them right before God. He's trying to get us to see the problems with all of us. Every single one of us. In fact, if you look Chapter 3, verse 9. This is where he's bringing the conversation. Notice he says there, What then? Are we better than they? That is, he's asking, are we Jews any better off? Not at all, for we've already charged that both, Greeks, Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. Now I want you to see if you can de- detect here what he's going to emphasize. As it is written, verse 10, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. He's subtle here, but did you catch his point? Notice his repetition. None. All. Lest anybody should think that they don't have a problem with God. Lest any of us should think there's no problem, no issue. Paul says emphatically, there's none righteous. Not even one. Let me tell you again. Not even one. One. Past, present, or future. Beloved, he's describing here a rather hopeless condition that all of us apart from Christ are in. In Ephesians 2, chapter 1, and again in verse 5, he repeats this. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Or in Colossians 2, verse 13, he says, you were dead in your transgressions. you understand what that analogy means? What he's saying by that? To be dead in sin? How many of you have seen at a, at a funeral, uh, the corpse uh, rise up out of the, the coffin. I'm not talking about a movie here, right? We don't see dead bodies walking in the cemetery, right? If you're dead, you're dead. If you're spiritually dead, you're unable to make yourself spiritually alive. That's Paul's point. It's a rather desperate condition. We're all in sin. We're all dead in sin. We're all unable to escape. We're all unable to free ourselves. We're all standing in condemnation. This is something Paul makes very clear. If he couldn't emphasize it any further, look at verse 19 of chapter 3. He says here, "Where anybody who thinks they can escape by by keeping law, by doing good, by making up for the bad... Notice what he says to them, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that, how many mouths? Every Every mouth may be closed. And how much of the world? All the world may be accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So if, Any of us that had hope that we could have this life raft of good deeds that we could jump into to save ourselves, it's dashed on the rocks right here. Paul says here very clearly, the law was not given as a means of salvation, as if obeying the law could make up for the sins that have been committed. In fact, he's saying here very clearly, the the law was not an instrument of salvation, but actually an instrument of condemnation. Because the law exposes sin, it doesn't remove it. And then comes those horrifying words in verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. No one will be made right, have right standing before God. No flesh can escape condemnation from His wrath. Later in Romans 5.18, Paul says that through Adam's sin, there resulted condemnation to all men. Every single one of us. Beloved, think about carefully those words. No flesh justified those are haunting words scary because they tell us without jesus there's no way no way at all to be right with god there's no way any of us could stand before a holy god our nature our association with adam our own sins that we've committed we stand condemned And let me say, if there's anyone here who does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, who has not submitted to him as Lord and Savior, who has not sought his forgiveness, who has not expressed a desire to turn from their sin and put their trust completely in him alone, then you stand right now condemned. Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And what he meant there was an eternal separation from God an unending torment in hell we know that's the case because he said that he contrasted that with having eternal life it's an everlasting suffering if you don't know jesus you're on death row and there's no way out except through one there is one who can make an appeal on your behalf only one there's only one that god will listen to will you trust in him and I know I began this morning was pretty upbeat, right? We had some upbeat songs or clapping, uh, looking at even as we introduced the message, it's the gospel, the encouragement, the motivation from it. And here we've been spending the last uh, 20, 30 minutes talking about sin and being condemned. And then all of us have a problem. All of us are in trouble. All of us are under God's wrath. Why is that? I thought Paul was writing to Christians here. I mean, we all understand we're sinners, right? I think we all understand that that we can't earn God's favor by good works. So, why is Paul rehearsing all of these things? Why is he bringing them up? Is he trying to induce some sort of guilt in us so that, well, you need to serve God then? Look at all he's done to you. You're a wretched sinner. You need to serve him now. Is that what he's doing? Is he trying to beat them over the head with their sin? trying to make them feel bad, make us feel bad. (laughs) But you see, beloved, even in these verses, the focus really isn't on us. Yes, these verses talk about us, but their point is to draw attention to someone else. To focus our attention on the fact that we are in this desperate and helpless condition so that we would see the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For though he ends, verse 20, with the words, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Notice how he begins, verse 21. But now. (laughs) Paul loves doing that. But now. It's those words which take us from our condemnation, our standing before God to Christ's work on our behalf. I love those words, but now. They're They're like music to my ears. They're like a healing balm to my soul. It's, it's like a ray of light that's piercing through the darkened clouds, like a, the first bloom of spring, breaking the cold death of winter. Because those two words, but now, tell us there's hope. Tells us there's a way of escape, that we have a way out. Verse 21, Paul says there in Romans 3, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. See what he's saying here? He's taking us back to 117. That phrase here, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's parallel to what 117, where he said the righteousness of God has been revealed. We understand what he means there to be the righteousness that comes from God to us, but... The question then is arising, how? How can this righteousness of God from God, this right standing before God, how can it be achieved if it's not by our own efforts, if it's not by a good deeds, if it's not by something we have to do or keeping the law? How does it happen then? Well, Paul answers this in verses 22 to 26 in Romans 3, verses that one theologian said comprised possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Martin Luther called them the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. Look at verse 22 with me, where Paul says this, "...even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly." As a propitiation in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Beloved, those are potent words. They are powerful words, precious words. And as you, as we better understand what he is saying here and what he is getting at, as we delve into these truths, they will do a transforming work in your hearts. In these truths, we were given the power of the gospel. We first see that the righteousness that comes from God only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Only through trusting in him and him alone to save. It's, it's a gift, Paul said in verse 24, right? A gift that is given by his grace, which means something that we have earned and deserve, right? Well, grace is unmerited. It's unearned favor. It's not something we achieve our own effort, right? Verse 24, notice he says they're being justified. This is a passive verb. It means I'm not the one justifying myself. Someone else has to do it for me. And that someone is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This word here, justification, important word in this book. In fact, it's probably the word, the hinge upon which the book of Romans turns. It it carries a judicial sense. It's this idea of being declared not guilty. It means the sentence of judgment's been removed, that the punishment has been remanded. It means simply this. You no longer stand before God condemned. Romans 8.1 explains that when he says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, this justification is God's gracious gift in Christ That by faith, as you stand before him, knowing what you deserve, knowing that we deserve his condemnation, knowing that we deserve his wrath, knowing that we deserve his just judgment. And instead, you hear these words, not guilty. But but I I deserve not guilty. You've been declared righteous. I mean, think of that moment. (laughs) Joy, relief, gratitude. In Christ, you've been pardoned. He's given you amnesty. You're no longer held accountable for your sin. But the question arises, well, how is that? How is it that we can be declared not guilty? That, that our sins, that our guilt can be removed from us? We can't pay for it. We can't make up for it. We can't talk our way out of it. So how can we be declared not guilty? Well, look again at verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace... Through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the next marvelous truth of the gospel as Paul is unfolding it before our eyes as he's peeling back the curtain, taking off layer after layer and showing us the next layer is redemption. Redemption simply means that he purchased us. And it has the idea of of a payment being made to deliver somebody out of bondage. That sounds like it describes us, doesn't it? We were in bondage. And Jesus paid a price to deliver us. We were on death row awaiting final sentence. And Jesus who said of himself that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He stepped forward. He bought your freedom. He set you free. He delivered you by paying a price you and I could not pay. And what was that price? First Peter 1, 18. You were redeemed, same word, with not with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but redeemed with precious blood. Precious blood is of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. First Corinthians six twenty says that you were bought with a price. Ephesians one seven says, "In whom you have, we have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of our." trespasses and then that passes we're introduced to another word a corollary word to redemption that is the word forgiveness forgiveness also has this idea of a, a payment a payment involved but it's a payment of a debt it's a payment of a debt and what is the debt that we owe it's our sin in fact I want you to see something here that Colossians two thirteen. can you please turn there for a moment here I want you to see this forgiveness is it's more than just the payment of a debt It's more than just a debt's payment. Indeed, it involves that. It includes it. But there's something in this text I want you to notice. Colossians 2, 13. Paul says, When you were dead in your transgressions, and there's that reference to being dead in sin, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And now listen carefully. Notice what he says next in verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Do you know what he's saying here? This is a glorious realization and truth. For it shows us that forgiveness isn't just him uh, uh, um, paying for the debt. It's not just him paying it off. More than that, Colossians 2.14 says that Christ canceled our debt. That's a word that means to to wipe away, to destroy, to cause to disappear, to, to erase, to remove as to leave no trace, to obliterate. He says also at the end of verse 14, Jesus has taken the debt out of the way. That means he's carried it up, lifted it, and removed it. Oh, if we could just grasp what this means. That our... Our sin debt isn't just paid, it's removed. It's, it's gone. It's wiped away. There's, there's no record of it. There's no page in God's books that God can open up and refer to, flipping through the pages. And... Hmm. Whoa. 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 Look at all these. And then stamps paid in full on that. See, that would tell, okay, sin is paid for. But it's still a record of it. But you see, that's not the case. What is it God does? He rips those pages out and he runs them through the shredder. They're gone. They're obliterated. They're removed. He's not going to bring them up ever again. They're gone. That's a difference. It's not a bill of sale that's been paid. It's a bill of sale that doesn't exist. <laughs> Isn't that a blessing? Isn't that an encouragement? They're canceled. They're gone. You'll never see it again. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And beloved, I'm so passionate about this here because we have to remind ourselves of these things. We're so easily caught up in continuing to feel guilty even after we've confessed our sin. We we have this mindset often, well, how can I pay God back? Even as a believer, how can I make up for this, Lord? As if we could. God says, no, it's all been paid. By my son. All of it. Before, during, after, all of your sin's been covered. It's been paid for. In fact, it's removed. It's canceled. It's erased. Remind yourself, Jesus paid in full by his own blood. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow snow is very white when it first falls on the ground. Is this not incredible news? Because of Jesus, you, you no longer stand condemned. Because of Jesus, you are redeemed. You're purchased. You're bought out of bondage. Because of Jesus, you are forgiven. Your debt has been completely erased. He's washed you clean. But there's still a lingering question. Remember where Paul began this conversation. He's talking about the wrath of God's revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and righteousness. It's one thing to pay a debt. It's another to consider what the one who paid it thinks and feels. In other words, he may have forgiven the debt, but what does he think about us? Is he still angry? Look Yeah, okay, your debt's paid, but <clears throat> I remember What about his wrath? Is he still not angry at our sin? Well, make your way back to Romans 3. You know, if Paul had stopped at verse 24, this would be a question that we would wonder about. If he had stopped at verse 24, we'd be left to think, well, what about his wrath? Paul didn't really address it. He said we've been forgiven, that we've been redeemed, that we no longer stand condemned. But how does he look at us? Notice verse 25. He says of Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That word propitiation means the basic idea is to appease or satisfy someone's anger. In this case, it is to satisfy God's anger. We see this idea in Romans 5, 9, where he says, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him and 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he says, Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Do you understand what propitiation means? What, what Jesus as the propitiation for our sin means? That his sacrifice appeased God's anger fully, completely. That's it. He's satisfied. His anger against our sin. When Jesus bore our sin in his body on the cross, God's wrath was poured out on him. And not us, and that means, and and I want you to listen carefully here. That means God is not angry with you, ever. Ever. He's no longer indignant over your sin. He, his wrath no longer hangs over you. He poured that wrath out on His Son. But, but Tim, I, I sinned yesterday. Yeah. I, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus, but but I sinned yesterday. In fact, I sinned today. There's a good chance I'm going to sin tomorrow. Pretty good chance, too, next week. And they just keep coming. I struggle with it. I don't want to do it. Romans 7, right? Paul's struggle. But that still happens. Isn't God angry at my sin? That's what Romans 1.18 says, right? Well, indeed, our sin grieves God. It does grieve Him. And yes, He does bring consequences, as Hebrews 12 talks about. As a loving father, though, he brings consequences for our sin in order not to punish us, not to unleash his anger upon us. That's been done. He brings that correction in order to guide us back on the path of following his son so that we would yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. But know this, beloved, it's not done out of anger. God's anger does not hang over you if you're his child. This is such a a mental block, I think, for many of us to think this way. I mean, we should be abhorrent of our sin and, and we should recognize how terrible it is, especially as a believer. But we also need to recognize that sin's been forgiven. Jesus, when he was on the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he bore the Father's full wrath for all your sin. Every single one. It wasn't a partial agreement. Okay, son, I'll, I'll pour out my wrath partially up to this point. We'll just have to see after that. Because some of my people, you know, they're going to commit some pretty bad things. So I got to think about this a little bit. That's not at all what happened. He poured out his wrath upon his son. And that's why the father turned away. You know, Nahum... Ask the question, who can stand before God's fury? Who can endure the burning of His anger? And there is one who can, and one who did on our behalf. Jesus hung on the cross as a curse so that by faith you would not be cursed. He was forsaken so that you would never be. He endured the full wrath of God so you would never have to. Jesus endured hell so that He could offer to us the glories of heaven. And so when you approach God to confess your sins just remind yourself you're not approaching a scowling angry frowning god you're approaching a loving father ready to forgive ready to restore to cleanse and even to bring correction to help you stay on the path you approach a god of grace not a god of wrath but again the question still well how is this possible how is this possible that god's wrath could be fully satisfied Look at Paul's answer in verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. What comes next? In His blood. Through faith. There it is. It's Christ's shed blood. It is His death which makes this all possible. His blood erases sin. His blood redeems you. His blood justifies you. His blood satisfies the wrath of God against your sin and mine. He's the substitute. He's the atoning sacrifice. Because again, there's no way that you or I could pay for our sin. And that was the point of the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? It was to give them a graphic picture, a clear picture that they could not pay for their sin. They had to bring this animal, slit its throat, its blood would pour out. They'd get blood all over themselves. As they lift up their hands, asking God to accept a sacrifice, they'd be reminded, it took the death of this innocent animal in my place. But, of course, we know that wasn't adequate, right? The blood of an animal could not permanently remove the sin of a human being. But something had to give its life in our place. Hebrews 9.22 said, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But, again, the problem is that the blood, the life of that animal, wasn't sufficient It's only temporary. Hebrews 10.10 says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And we see this over and over in that Psalm of the Suffering Servant that Bob read from earlier, and I agree with him. It's probably one of the most profound and detailed paragraphs, sections in Scripture on the work of Christ. And over and over and over, at least 13, 14 times. In fact, I gave the guys in my class a quiz on this to list every time that's mentioned the substitutionary, the atoning work of Christ. Over and over, he says this, Isaiah 53.5, Fifty-three, five. let me read it again for you. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And put your name in here. The chastening for Tim's well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, Tim was healed. All of us, Tim included, all of you, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us, Tim especially, turned to his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of Tim and of us all to fall on him. I know we're familiar with these words, but don't let that stop you from understanding and treasuring the impact. Verse 11, he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many. You see, only a human could take the place of another human. Only a perfect human could be a substitute sufficient for another human's sin. Only the Son of God who became human could be the atonement for us. Only him. Isaiah 53, Hebrews 10, several other texts make it emphatically clear there is nothing else, there is no one else who can atone for our sin. That's why Jesus said, only through me, right? I'm the way, the truth, the life, but it's only through him we can come to the Father. That's why Peter said in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Because who else could be your substitute? Substitute. This is the core message of the gospel. Who could pay for your sin? Who? What? Buddha can't. Vishnu is not a sufficient substitute. Muhammad did not and could not. New Age crystals can't remove your sin. Religious ceremonies can't do it. Joseph Smith can't do it. Mary can't intercede for you. Your sin must be paid for. Our sin requires payment. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus did do it. And there are not many ways to God because there's not many ways to have your sin atoned for. Remember this as you talk to people. This is the key issue. This is the crux of the situation. You and I have sinned. We've rebelled. We've committed evil. How is that going to be paid for? How is that going to be covered? How is that going to be atoned for? It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. It's only by believing in Him. It's only by relying on Him and no one else. Beloved, these are precious truths that they should never get old. They should never be stale. You know, as I sat in the room with those men singing the passion and the joy, you could see it, couldn't you? They they were grateful. They were thankful. They understood who they were singing to. And I think, to our shame, they poured out their emotions to God in that moment. We could do better with that. I think sometimes we're we're so numbed, even by the fact of the message we've heard so many times, that we forget to relish exactly what it is telling us. Jesus Christ atoned for your sin and mine. He stood in your place, so you'd be declared not guilty. So these are wonderful doctrines that that should never become stale. It should warm our hearts, gladden our souls. Right? I love to tell the story. It will be my song and glory. Tell the old story of Jesus and His love. You know, we're up in heaven. We're not going to be talking about the fact that Seattle didn't win that second Super Bowl. We're not going to be trying, looking at each other's clothing, saying, "What, what color is that dress?" I stayed out of that one. I'm colorblind, but we're not going to be involved in those frivolous things, are we? Where's our attention going to be directed? Telling the story of how we've been redeemed. Telling the story of what Jesus, God the Son, did on our behalf. We didn't deserve it. And He came. He stood in our place, suffered on our behalf for those who believe. That's what we're going to be talking about. That's what we're going to be singing about. No longer under God's wrath. Our sins washed away. And you know, Paul could have ended his letter right here. And that would have been good enough. Basking in that knowledge and those truths. But he didn't stop there. He kept going. And after the missions conference, so are we. We're going to look further and. These wonderful truths of the gospel, but beloved, I, I need to encourage and remind you. For the, any of these to have real impact, for for this to really sink in, for you to experience the power of the gospel, you have to meditate on and remind yourself of these things and treasure them. You can't walk out of here and get on with things and forget all that we have seen and talked about and heard from His Word this morning. You have to bring it to your mind and to your heart consistently. Paul's words will be a little help to you if you don't remind yourself of them and think on them. So I want to encourage you this week to do two things. First, if you don't have it yet, get the book called A Gospel Primer. That's Queen's English. A Gospel Primer um, by Milton Vincent. It's a thin little book. It's a wonderful book. It's devotions related to the gospel for believers to ponder and think about. I think there's like 30 of them. It's like one each day. It's a short paragraph or two. Get that book. Each day, read from it. I've been going through it again. Just what an encouragement. And secondly, begin to cultivate a habit of meditating on the gospel. In your quiet times this week, let me encourage you to do this. Uh, Each of those terms, each of those principles we talked about this morning, redemption, atonement, forgiveness, our, our standing before God, all those things, write down one of those each day. And then what does it mean? Write down, find a verse, a couple verses. I mentioned several of them. Write that down as well. What does it mean? And how does it help you to think differently or more deeply about Christ? And then spend a few minutes in prayer, thanking God for that truth and asking Him to open your eyes to gain even greater and deeper understanding of it. Because it is in that that you will be moved and motivated and experience God's power in your life to live for Him to love him beloved we must develop the habit of gospel meditation for the gospel is the power of god for salvation to all who believe amen well as we pray i want to give you a moment just to think about what we've talked about this morning meditate on these things begin to practice now dwelling upon the gospel and then i'll close this in prayer in a moment Oh Lord, what what can what can we say? <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for your goodness. Father, thank you for sending your son Lord to take upon himself our wrath, your wrath against our sin. Lord, thank you Jesus for being willing to suffer in our place. Gladly in obedience to the Father and love for Him and love for us. Lord, give us just a deeper understanding, a, a greater glimpse of these truths, what, what it means to be redeemed and forgiven. And Lord, that what it means that God's wrath has been satisfied, what, what it means that we've been, Lord, justified. Lord, thank you for. This gospel, thank you for moving Paul to write this letter to unfold these wonderful truths. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would not let us drift from them in our minds, but keep bringing them back to our hearts so that we will be encouraged and moved by the power of the truths that they contain. So that Jesus would be lifted up, honored, exalted. We would rightly worship him for all that he's done. We pray in his name. Amen.